Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. How can we alleviate the refugee crisis? It's a question for today's guest on Future Hindsight, Mark Hetfield, the president and CEO of HIAS, a refugee assistance organization. He's an expert in refugee and immigration law, policy, and programs. He has led HIAS's transformation from an organization focused on Jewish immigrants to a global agency assisting refugees of all faiths and ethnicities. Hayes is now a major implementing partner of the United Nations Refugee Agency and the U.S. Department of State. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Mila. What is the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker? Both are people who have a well-founded fear of persecution based on their religion, their political opinion, their social group, their nationality. But a refugee in the United States is somebody who is basically handpicked by the United States government overseas and brought here from another country. An asylum seeker is someone who shows up in the United States and applies for asylum. They could do this at the border, they could do this in the airport, or they could do this after they've already come in on a visa and if they feel it's unsafe for them to go back. So basically, a refugee is somebody in the United States who is processed overseas. An asylum seeker is somebody who is processed here in the United States. And if it is found that they meet the refugee definition, the asylum seeker becomes an asylee. Got it. So it's really just the status of where you are processed. Right. But there, there is another important distinction. If somebody comes to your border and needs protection or somebody is inside the United States and needs asylum under international law and under U.S. law, the United States is obligated to give them asylum, to protect them, to not return them to a place where they could be persecuted. If there's a refugee overseas in Jordan, let's say, or in Turkey, the United States is under absolutely no obligation to take that person in as a refugee. The United States does it in order to share responsibility with the country of first asylum, because countries like Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, right now have hundreds of thousands of refugees and just basically as an accident of geography. And so the United States has long pursued a policy of sharing responsibility for refugees by helping countries of first asylum by taking a relatively small number, but still a significant enough number to make a difference. You mentioned earlier that the United States has to give protection, but asylum seekers do get returned. Well, An asylum seeker under international law and under U.S. law cannot be returned until that person has had an opportunity to demonstrate whether or not he or she qualifies for asylum status. And and if they do show that they are refugees under international law, that they qualify for asylum, they cannot be returned. What are the main problems that refugees face in their everyday lives? There are many, many problems that refugees face. Refugees have, by definition, fled everything. They have fled their country. They have fled their home. They have fled their job. They have generally no means to support themselves. They enter a strange country. Often they don't know the language. All they have is the theoretical right, the right under international law, to remain there and to be protected. But it's a struggle 
to exercise that right and to get that protection. And then once you get that protection, you still have to find a way to support yourself, to support your family, to make sure your kids get the education that they are entitled to. And then to try to stop being in a temporary situation and to either integrate into that country or to eventually go home. A refugee has essentially lost everything except for the clothes on their back and whatever they can carry with them when they flee the country. They have to spend the rest of their life trying to get that back. That sounds incredibly overwhelming. One of the things you said just now is that they struggle to exercise their rights to be protected. Governments fail to give that protection, which is why they became refugees in the first place. What is the most common cause for this failure? Well, I should give you a little sense of history, which is during the Second World War and before that, there was no right to protection like this. There was no refugee convention. There was no international law that gave meaningful protection to refugees. So at least now, after the 1951 Convention on Refugees, we do have that. But one of the failures of the Refugee Convention is that while it requires countries to give a refugee protection, it doesn't require other countries to pitch in and help, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Let's say one million Syrian refugees flee to Lebanon, which has actually happened, a country of only about six million people, and one-sixth of them are now, in fact, Syrian refugees. There's no international law that requires other countries to help them, yet Lebanon is required to give them all protection. That's a failure. And countries will feel overwhelmed. It's that feeling of being overwhelmed, of being threatened by the other, which makes it difficult for refugees to exercise their rights. I would say that having those fears is probably a normal thing, because here are some strangers that come in and we don't know their cultures just like they don't know ours. And what do we do? What happens next? That's exactly right. And as you know, Hyas is, is a Jewish organization. And we like to point out that in the Torah, in the, in the first five books of the Old Testament, the commandment to love the stranger as thyself, for we were once strangers in the land of Egypt, is uh, repeated no less than 36 times. We do have an obligation to the other, to protect the other, which those people are entitled to as human beings. On your website, your taglines are, welcome the stranger, protect the refugee. Your vision is to stand for a world in which refugees find welcome, safety, and freedom. Why and how was Hayes founded? We were started in 1881, which makes us the oldest refugee organization in, in the world that's uh, still in operation. We were started because at that time there was a massive emigration of Jews who were fleeing pogroms in Russia and Eastern Europe, which was really a, a genocide to uh, annihilate a significant number of, of, the, of the Jewish people in that part of the world. The belief uh, was that one-third of Jews should be converted, one-third should be killed, and one-third should emigrate. And so sure enough, it led to the biggest migration of Jews since the expulsion from uh, the Iberian Peninsula at the end of the 15th century. So Hyas was, was started to welcome these refugees to make sure that they got into the United States, first through Castle Garden and then later through Ellis Island to make sure they had kosher meals 
while they were waiting. We put them up in a in shelter uh, until they were able to find permanent housing or move on to another city. And in fact, the public theater on the Lower East Side was for many, many decades the highest headquarters and the highest shelter. And so that was our focus from 1881 to 1921. And during that period of time, the American Jewish community grew from just 250,000 to over 3 million. Does Hyas only help refugees resettle in the United States, or do you do it in other places also? I would say about half of our work is resettling refugees in the United States. The other half of our work is to keep refugees safe where they are, to, to help refugees integrate into countries of first asylum. For example, we are present in Ecuador, in Costa Rica, in Panama, in Israel, in Ukraine, Kenya, Chad. Your mission statement includes this sentence. Guided by our Jewish values and history, we bring more than 130 years of expertise to our work with refugees. How do your values inform your work? Well, the way we put it is we used to help refugees because they were Jewish, and today we help refugees because we are Jewish. For most of the agency's existence, really for our first 120 years, we were overwhelmed by the needs of Jewish refugees who were fleeing the pogroms in Russia, Jews who were trying to flee uh, Eastern Europe just before the Holocaust and then during the Holocaust, Jews who were fleeing Hungary in 1956, Cuba in 1959, the many Jews who were displaced within the Middle East after the establishment of the State of Israel, and then assisting Soviet Jews who were finally allowed to leave the Soviet Union from 1970 to 2000. So we were totally overwhelmed with Jewish refugee needs. Fortunately, after the turn of the last century, around 2000 or so, there were no longer Jews trapped behind an Iron Curtain. So we finally had the opportunity to transition from what we call our Exodus period, when we were focused on our own mass migration, to our Leviticus period, where we took everything that we learned during those 120 years, everything that we experienced, all the empathy that we developed by being refugees ourselves and being a refugee people and a refugee community, and applying it to others. Assume I'm a refugee, let's say I'm a refugee right now in Turkey, mm -hmm. and I'm lucky to get Hyas's help. How does it work? <laughs> the refugee has to identify herself to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, which has a presence in Turkey and in many other countries, as being in need of resettlement. For some reason, that refugee has some factor that distinguishes her from the other refugees in Turkey. Maybe that refugee's life is in danger. Maybe that refugee has medical conditions that cannot be met in Turkey. Maybe the refugee has close family members in another country that the refugee needs to be reunited with. Is being victimized by sexual or gender-based violence and can't get protection in Turkey from that abuse. So there are a number of factors that the UN High Commissioner for Refugees takes into account. And then if the refugee needs resettlement, we'll then refer the refugee to the United States, Canada or Australia, or even countries in South America. Many European countries are now starting to resettle refugees. Uh, so that's, that's the way it works. There are more refugees and, and displaced persons today than at any other time in human history. O over 65 million displaced persons, over 23 million refugees. The number one priority has to be, and always has been, 
to try to make refugees safe in the country to which they first flee and to try to integrate them until it is safe for them to go home. So resettlement is an option that is available only to usually about 1% of the world's refugees. That's a staggeringly low number, right. 1%. Also, it's important to note that in terms of the United States and the way we, we address refugee situations, President Trump keeps saying that we need to help refugees where they are, not bring them all here. Well, that is U.S. policy. That has always been U.S. policy. The U.S. traditionally spends around $7 in overseas refugee assistance for every $1 we spend on actually bringing refugees to the United States. That policy makes sense. This is what we do. But still, that does not prevent us from bringing in a significant number of refugees. Well, it's interesting that you talk about that as being existing U.S. policy. And I think people just don't really know what U.S. policy is. What are the most common misconceptions about refugees that you see out there and you wish people would understand better? One is this misconception that the United States is overburdened with refugees relative to other countries, that we do way too much and other countries do way too little. That is simply not true. The United States, by virtue of our geographic isolation, really, takes in relatively few refugees. We have relatively few asylum seekers. You had a million going into Germany in 2015. You don't see numbers like that here. And this is one of the reasons the U.S. has been able to be generous as a refugee resettlement country, going into countries of first asylum and helping share responsibility by taking refugees out. Other countries have far more refugees that they are hosting. Lebanon, in which one in every six people is, is a refugee from Syria. Another misconception is that refugees are not vetted, that we don't know who they are. It is not true. The U.S. refugee program has done extreme vetting for years, and the vetting has gotten more and more intense under the George W. Bush administration and under the Obama administration to the point where the refugee program was no longer really a refugee rescue program. It took so long that refugees had to survive for 18 to 24 months while they were processed. Their biodata and their fingerprints are run across multiple governmental and intergovernmental security agency and intelligence agency databases. And until every one of those databases is checked by multiple agencies, no refugee can come into the United States. The refugee's fingerprints travel with that refugee for the rest of their life. So they will be able to, uh, to track that refugee long after they come into the country. Refugees have to do full family trees. So the United States isn't just looking at the refugee. They're actually looking at the refugee's relatives when they do these assessments. The refugee has to go through extensive face-to-face -face interviews with multiple parties, including a Homeland Security official, before they're allowed to get on an airplane. And these security checks are actually run over and over and over again until the refugee actually travels to the United States. It's a miracle anybody gets through this process, which is just such an arduous obstacle course. To say these refugees are not vetted is just an absurdity. And what has happened now is they have taken the system and made the scrutiny so intense that nobody can get through it. And that's why in the first six months of this year, only 11 Syrian refugees were resettled. Not 1,100, not 11,000, but 11. And that to me means the U.S. government and, and the U.S. refugee program are not doing their jobs. They are failing 
So we have almost 300,000 people who have been invited by the United States government and through the process that has been set up to apply for the refugee program. They are waiting in queue, but we're not even going to admit 20,000 this year or because of these extreme security checks and the under-resourcing of the refugee program. So those are some of the myths that bother me the most, that the United States is overwhelmed and that uh, the United States is not vetting these refugees. We are. Let's go back to your point that only 11 Syrians have arrived in the first six months of this year. What is really the capacity of the U.S. of accepting refugees? That's a very good question. How many can we really take? And what we have found is that our capacity is enormous and untapped. The concept of the U.S. refugee program is a partnership between the United States government and private agencies, nine private non-governmental agencies, non-profit agencies, six of which are faith-based. The Jewish community, HIAS, as well as all the other faith-based agencies, have congregations that are clamoring for more refugees, that have raised resources, identified apartments, uh, have tons of volunteers lined up to welcome refugees and assist with their integration. In the early 1980s, there were times when we were admitting more than 200,000 refugees in a single year. And that was done without breaking the system. It worked. And those refugees overwhelmingly became very successful American citizens over time. So our capacity is tremendous. We could resettle hundreds of thousands of refugees without even noticing the impact or the stress. And in fact, we do know that the impact of bringing refugees is, over the long term, very, very positive, that refugees are among the most productive members of society because they know that you cannot take this life for granted. They know that everything they have could be taken away from them. If I can generalize a little bit, because refugees have already experienced such extreme loss, they tend to strive to succeed and to make sure that their children do not face the loss that they faced. The U.S., in fact, has a long history of taking refugees. How has that made this country stronger, aside from them being very productive members of society? First of all, we always argue that we take refugees because it's an act of humanity. It's a humanitarian act. But it's a very uh, welcome fact that in addition to that, refugees do contribute to society in tremendous ways. There was a study that was actually suppressed by the Trump administration, which was supposed to examine the costs of refugees to society. And what Health and Human Services found was that over a 10-year period, refugees actually contribute many tens of billions of dollars more than they take in services. Refugees are some of the most talented people we have. We like to say at Highest that it were not for Highest and were not for bringing in refugees, there would be no Google. One of the co-founders of Google was a refugee, Sergey Brin. One of the co-founders of WhatsApp, Jan Kuhn, was a refugee. Andy Grove was a refugee who started Intel. It's not why we bring them here. We bring them here because we have to, because it, it's a way that we protect human rights and that we protect humanity. The fact of the matter is, we in America know something that other countries don't, and that is that refugees are a tremendous asset and can actually be an engine that can help drive our economy and make us a more successful country. These success stories are tremendous, and it really makes me believe that, in fact, Americans are very good at welcoming refugees. 
What do you think makes America so uniquely able to help these people prosper? It's not that we have developed a deliberate system in policy. It's just that America tends to integrate refugees organically. Because we're a, a nation of immigrants and refugees, we, like Canada, have just been very successful in helping them become new Americans. That's really the secret to our success. We have not been great at developing policies uh, to further their integration, but it hasn't been necessary because we know the beautiful thing about this country is it's relatively easy to become American. It doesn't have any racial requirements. It doesn't have any bloodline requirements. It basically requires that you have some kind of legal status, that you understand the civics of this country, and that you speak the language, and that you respect our laws. And if you can do those things, and you've come here legally, whether as a refugee or through some other program, you can be an American. And it's that ability to be an American that gives refugees the ability to succeed. With the refugee crisis at our hands now, what do you foresee happening in this space in the United States? I'm very worried about what's happening right now. January of 2017 was one of the worst and one of the best months of my professional life in this field. Because while you saw the United States government basically slam the door in the face of refugees through the executive order of January 27th, at the same time you saw a mass spontaneous uprising of people who were protesting that. Airports all over the country were occupied by people protesting the refugee ban and the Muslim ban, chanting, no hate, no fear, refugees are welcome here. It was so edifying. It was such a boost to our, our spirit to see that this is America, that Americans will not stand by if the door is slammed in the face of refugees. But I have to tell you that Things continue to get worse for refugees in this country. It is getting harder and harder for them to come in. They are feeling more and more hostility in coming to this country, and Americans are kind of getting used to it. You no longer see those kinds of protests. It's just become kind of normalized, and that's what's really upsetting. We have to understand that it seemed like we won some real victories last year. Courts ruled against the refugee ban, really curtailed the president's power to exercise a, a refugee ban. But the fact of the matter is that the policies are getting worse. The door is shutting and being locked. And people just are not reacting the same way because they've gotten used to it or they've gotten tired. And that, that's a problem. So what is Hyas doing about that? What's your role? Highest is doing our best to keep our congregations and our communities engaged. The interest remains high, but we have to actually activate people to go out there and to continue to speak out, even though it is exhausting. Our elected representatives need to understand that we care about this issue, that the American Jewish community cares about this issue, that American Catholics care about this issue. That's what needs to be projected. Otherwise, it's not going to have an impact. Looking into the future, what gives you hope? History gives me hope. And I would say that my biggest problem in this job five years ago was apathy, that people just didn't seem to care about refugees, even though there was already a global refugee crisis. In September 2015, with the photograph of Alain Kurdi, everybody woke up, and they are still awake 
people do care about refugees. The challenge is getting more people to care, making sure that we get everyone to understand that refugees could be you or me, but for the circumstance. But that's really what gets me through was the popular response in this country to refugees in 2015, which continues. Thank you very much. The Refugee Convention of 1951 outlines the rights of refugees and places legal obligations to protect them. They should not be returned to a country where they face serious threats to their life or freedom. We do have an obligation to our fellow human beings. Refugees have lost everything in their lives, and if they are lucky enough to resettle in another country, they find themselves struggling to learn a new language and make a living. And yet, they are so resilient that overwhelmingly they have become very successful American citizens. This is in part because America is a nation of immigrants and refugees, and therefore it tends to integrate them organically. The U.S. has plenty of capacity to resettle them. We could easily absorb hundreds of thousands of refugees without even noticing. Discrimination against refugees has long been a part of U.S. history, and over time we have rectified our policies. In the face of the upheld Muslim travel ban by the Supreme Court and the crisis of family separation at the southern border, we must continue to speak out to our elected officials. We do care about refugees, and the numbers show that they are a tremendous asset to make America a more successful country. In light of our conversation on refugees, what would fair, comprehensive immigration policy look like? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Brent Wilkes. He's a lifelong advocate for Latino rights and was just given the Lifetime Achievement Excellence in Community Service Award by MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund. He's the former CEO of the League of United Latin American Citizens, or LULAC. It's kind of hard to understand how somebody working 80-hour weeks in the hot sun picking our food is taking advantage of us. We have to understand that that's really not accurate, that if anything, we're taking advantage of them. And it's in our power to say, you know what, you want to work this hard job and you want to take the low pay, fine, but we'll give you a legal status to do that because that's the least we can do. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.